Today we are addressing a subject that uh, is dominating the cultural, political conversation in the world around us, and I have a lot to say, so um, I could begin with some nice thoughts about this, that, and the other, but I really just want to get right into this uh, today. My title is Gender, Sexuality, and Gospel Ministry in 2015. These subjects and the nature of marriage, what it means to be a man or a woman, uh, gender identity, all of these are front page, front and center. I think the recent Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage in America, uh, perhaps more than anything, has forced down upon uh, the church the question whether or not we are going to speak clearly on these issues or not. It seems to me that if there was ever a time for clarity in the church and from the church on these issues, it is now. This is not a time for the church to go uh, down into the, uh, the subway and hide. This is a time for us to share lovingly but clearly what God says about these very core issues regarding what it means to be a human being. And so to bring that to bear today, we're going to uh, address this. And uh, I, I say these things in, in the context, even within the church broadly, where unfortunately there are uh, churches and denominations who are going wobbly on what God says about these matters. There are denominations who are uh, endorsing now same-sex marriage. They are ordaining gay clergy. They are promoting it within their church. There are uh, key leaders and writers, leading Christian types that are following the cultural trend regarding freedom of gender choice, sexual freedom, and marital redefinition. You know, you might say, yeah, that's going on, I know, but that's like the wacky, like, European stuff that's going on. Or that's just liberal America. It'll, it'll fade. It doesn't impact us. Let me remind you of what happened right here in Indiana back in March and April as uh, the whole debacle with the RAFRA law took place and the whole national shouting that happened and all the things that took place is evidence that this is not an issue that we can think here in middle America, in Indiana, good down-home Hoosier states, we don't have to deal with that. It's right here on our doorstep as well. I know as I talk about these things that this message is going to be heard by different kinds of ears this morning. Uh, there are some of you that are going to hear this politically, and you're going to think it's a call to political action of some kind. There are some of you that are going to hear this with parental ears, because you have a son or a daughter who is dealing with same-sex attraction or is involved in a homosexual lifestyle, and you hear that differently. Some people here are going to hear this personally. No doubt right here in this assembly, we have people who either presently or in the past have dealt with same-sex attraction, are dealing with that, um, and within the church wonder, like, is this something I can even talk about? Well, here we are talking about it uh, corporately together, and I hope that it is a help to you as well. 
Now, what I want to do today is I want to sketch the biblical basis for gender identity, male and female, uh, quickly the biblical definition of marriage, and then to get into talking about homosexuality from a biblical perspective, and then to talk about uh, some ministry uh, tips for how to be a biblical church in these matters. So let's begin with the basic question, what is a man and what is a woman? Now, 30 years ago, if I would have brought that up, probably most of the church would have been like, oh my goodness, this is so silly. Why are we talking about this? But this is a question that right now is a big deal in the culture around us. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? You know, the old joke was that if you wanted to tell if it was a boy or a girl, you had to look in their genes, right? G-E-N-E-S was the sort of play on words with that joke. Um, And it's so funny, by the way. Uh, But uh, that no longer is uh, at play because right now there is a, a, a disconnecting of biological DNA gender from the gender that you choose to identify yourself as. In fact, there was a, uh, recently, there, this was in a, uh, in a paper where the author, uh, this is from Canada, um, writes this, the Human Rights Tribunal in British Columbia will consider completely eliminating gender des- designations from birth certificates. In response to complaints from the Trans Alliance Society and other transgender individuals, according to an article in the National Post, according to the complaints, we need to stop acting as if doctors can tell the sex of a baby just by looking at the baby's genitals. Birth certificates, quote now, may give false information about people and characterize them in a way that is actually wrong, that assumes to be right, and causes people actual harm. I think in the days ahead, no longer will you go to the doctor and fill out male or female, or on your passport application, male or female, or to designate yourself as a father or a mother. You'll be parent one and parent two. And things like this, as we see this ideology sort of reaching its natural conclusions, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And obviously, I think, I almost don't need to say this, but I will, the the big cultural moment when the uh, winner of the gold medal in uh, the Olympic decathlon, to do that, you're considered the greatest athlete in the world to win that gold medal. Bruce Jenner became famous for that. Um, Recently, as you probably know, said, I now choose to identify myself as a woman, changed his name to Caitlin. And you might say, you know, people do things, okay, whatever. That was not just a whatever. That was a cultural moment. ESPN uh, gave Caitlyn Jenner uh, the award for most courageous athlete of the year as a kind of sanctioning of his decision and the celebrating of it. You know all of that already. I just point that out to you as another example of how gender and sexuality and all of that is totally up in the air. It's completely arbitrary in the day that we live in. So why does mankind presently seem to so badly want to get rid of the definitions of what it means to be a man or a woman or to be married to a man or a woman? 
And to, uh, to, to answer this, to talk about this, I want to go back to the beginning, back to what God intended male and female to be by design. So we're going back here to Genesis 1, first chapter of the Bible, we have gender explained. Here's the text, John 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the uh, fish of the seas and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay? So we see from the beginning in God's design for humanity, we have gender. Male and female, he created them. This is part of, broadly talked about, what it means to be in the image of God. Okay, God purposed to make us in his likeness. And that likeness includes being male and being female. This is what makes us different from, not the maleness and femaleness, but The image bearing is what makes us different from the animals and the plant life and really anything else in creation. There is nothing in the universe like a human being because God placed within us a image bearing, a likeness to himself. And that primarily revolves around not so much physically that we look like God because God is spirit, but we have a moral reasoning. We have a spiritual understanding. We have a longing and a craving to worship something greater than ourselves. And we see that around the world. You can go to any culture, any society, you know, the Amazon jungle. Uh, You can go to a remote place in Australia and there you'll find image bearers that are looking to something that they need to worship, something greater than themselves. And with a kind of moral compass, Something is right, something is wrong. All cultures endorse and condemn certain moral activities. This is because we're made in the image of God. And tied to that image bearing is that we were made male and female. God created them. And we see in that that our, our, our sexuality is, God's not sexual. Okay, God is asexual. He is neither male nor female. He's not either one or the other. He's not both. So it's not that God is sexual, but what we find with God is that God is plural and God is one. We see that in the text. It says that they let us make, let us make man in his own image. The very first clue in the Bible to what now is the doctrine of Trinity That there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Plurality there. But in unity, such a strong unity, that in Deuteronomy 6.4 it can say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Say, plurality in, in unity. So God says to himself, let's make man like we are. And places within man this spiritual understanding, this moral reasoning, and sexual genders. Maleness and femaleness, which right down to our sexual organs are designed to fit together, to be one, picturing something greater than ourselves. And this text says, picturing God himself, 
who is plurality in absolute unity. So we see then that the personhood of man, manhood and womanhood, is tied directly to the nature of God. And since that God that we are reflecting in our, in our gender personhood is the most glorious and wonderful and beautiful being in all the world, to reflect that glory in our gender is a high and holy thing. It is a sacred thing. In fact, we know God thinks it's sacred because he makes Adam, he makes Eve, he steps back. And what does he say about all creation? It is very good. Sanctioning and making sacred what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. To be a man is a high and holy privilege. And the men said, to be a woman is a high and holy privilege. And the men said, I also want to note that Adam had male plumbing and was the man. Eve had female plumbing and was the woman. There is a tie between your gender and your biology that is part also of God's definition of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Secondly, then, let's talk about marriage. What is marriage, then, by God's design? If gender is based on the character and the creative purpose of God, what about marriage? Wouldn't it be awesome if we could just ask Jesus that very question? Or to think, wouldn't it be great if, like, when the Supreme Court was deliberating, if Jesus would have just kind of walked in there and those justices could have said, Jesus, you're, like, considered one of the great moral teachers of all time. Why don't you tell us what is marriage? Wouldn't that have been great if Jesus could have answered that question? Did you know that he actually did answer that question? And it was in the context of controversy about the definition of marriage. And we have it in Matthew 19, where some Pharisees come to him and ask him about marriage. Now, the context there, the controversy wasn't whether it's between a man and a woman or between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. the, The issue was, how can you get out of it? How easily can you get out of this marriage? And there was a, a certain group of people that, that they thought it was easy. Like anytime you're like, I'm done with this, I'm out, then you can get out. And then there was other group that they had a little more strict controls on that. So they come to Jesus and they ask him one of the hot potato questions of the day. Here's Matthew 19. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered... Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, there is a ton in that passage, but for our purposes today, I want to note to you where Jesus goes for his definition. He doesn't go to the culture and say, well, I don't know, like what's popular right now. And this in spite of the fact that he is the son of God. If there was ever anybody that had the right to redefine marriage, it's not justices or lawyers. 
It's the Son of God. Okay? And he could have said, you know, I'm here, I, I'm, we're doing a new thing here, new covenant, new testament, and why don't we go ahead and let's do something new with marriage, and I'm the Son of God, and I'm going to tell you, here's the new definition. He had the right to do it, but the Son of God did not redefine it. He goes back to the beginning, back to Genesis 1, and says what God purposed from the beginning, that definition, that still stands, because it's grounded in the eternal character of God. And because he never changes, and marriage is a reflection of what he is like, the definition won't change either. I also will note to you there's a gap of some thousands of years between Adam and Eve and Jesus. And we see in that that time and cultural distance doesn't change the essence of marriage. In fact... In this controversy, Jesus refuses to uh, accommodate the cultural winds of change. And his answer is radical and countercultural. So, what does Jesus say? Basically, this is what Jesus says Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. And that covenant redefines them as being one. Do you see the irony here? The irony is that people want to redefine marriage, but in its essence, marriage redefines us. We were two, now we're one. And that was radical in that time. And we know that because the disciples who are standing there listening to the Pharisees, listening to Jesus answer, they hear what he says and they're like, what? And they, they want Jesus to clarify this whole thing. And Jesus doesn't go, oh, you must have misunderstood me. You maybe thought that I was saying that it's, it's sacred and what God has brought together, it should never be separated. So I, let me clarify that a little bit here for you. He doesn't do that. He doubles down on it. And the disciples hear him double down. And uh, the response there is classic because they realize what Jesus is saying and how high and serious marriage is in, in his eyes. And their response in 19 verse 10 is, if this is the way it is between a man and a woman, it's better not to marry. <laughs> wow, if you can't get out of that thing. Better to eat frozen pizza every night of your life than to get into a covenant that you can't get out from. So to be clear here, God made marriage and defines marriage as a covenant between a man and a woman. If I had more time, I could take you to Ephesians 5 that talks about how marriage itself is a reflection of something sacred, namely the relationship between Jesus and, the ch and his church and that loving union. And so we see that gender reflects what God is like and marriage reflects what Jesus is relationship with the church is like, and both of those are eternal, unchanging, and sacred. Let's talk about homosexuality. And as we come to this, you know, I don't want anybody here to think that homosexuality in the Bible is a major theme. It's not a major theme of the Bible. It's not even a minor theme of the Bible. 
But when the Bible talks about homosexuality, it doesn't blush to talk about it. In fact, there are five main texts that deal with this subject in the Bible. Let me just sketch them for you very quickly. Genesis 19 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, God's judgment on those cities. Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, these are known as the holiness code there in Leviticus, chapters on sexual ethics where a number of sexual activities are listed and are condemned. Romans 118, I'm going to get to in a moment. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 is an interesting passage because it lists homosexuality in a list of vices that the Corinthian church used to be involved in. And then Paul says, and such were some of you, but you have been washed, you have been sanctified. And we see that in the church at Corinth, apparently there were former homosexuals who were right there, a part of the church, worshiping and Paul celebrates not their homosexuality, but their freedom from it and their redemption and their salvation. And then 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, another list of vices where uh, Paul lists homosexuality as one of the sins that the law condemns. So one thing is clear when you look at the passages the Bible talks about homosexuality is all of them speak about it negatively. All of them speak in a condemning way about homosexuality. There is no passage in Scripture that suggests even that it ought to be condoned or celebrated, that it's a legitimate part of uh, Christian expression or marriage. And yet, in spite of that, there are many, many, many Bible scholars, pastors, church leaders, authors, bloggers, writers who look at these same passages and they say, these don't apply. Now you might say, well, how could they, how can you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and think that God's okay with homosexuality? Well, uh, let me first of all say that they do so quite eloquently and very persuasively. My mentor in ministry, this is the guy I learned ministry from, great Bible teacher, had an opportunity to talk with a, uh, a pastor of a gay church. Um, maybe you're like, gay church? I didn't even know there was such a thing as a gay church. There are many, many gay churches. I know of at least one gay denomination. So uh, they're definitely out there. And he had an opportunity to talk with this guy. And he said to me, he said, Steve, if you, if you heard him explain those passages and why they think it's okay, I'm telling you right now, they are, I mean, it was really really persuasive. Not that it means he was buying into it, but he was just saying this guy's really, really good with it. And that's a Bible teacher saying they make persuasive arguments. How much more the average layperson in the church who maybe gets online, watches some YouTube video about from one of these guys and listens and thinks, you know, they make a great point there. And maybe, maybe we need to rethink that. You know, we live in a day where rethinking things is very popular. We need to rethink that a little bit. And then you have entire denominations endorsing same-sex marriage and endorsing the gay lifestyle. These are not, these are not uh, anti-intellectual people. These are very educated, rational people that come to these conclusions. 
Now you say, well, how can they do that? And let me just sketch a couple arguments that they make very quickly. The main one is this, that the homosexuality that's described in the Bible, the homosexuality of antiquity, is not the same kind of homosexuality as today. And what they mean by that is that when the Bible condemns homosexuality, it's condemning either promiscuous homosexuality, maybe like at at Sodom, or exploitive homosexuality where you have an older man and maybe a younger man or a boy and the older man is exploiting the the other for his own sexual purposes that that's what is condemned it's, it's exploitation it's not loving and they would argue that the present day homosexuality is loving long-term commitments to one another that this is a different kind that we have going on today. Now, have you ever thought to yourself as you turn on the television and once again the news is about something about uh, gay this or that, or you turned on the TV and it's a sitcom and it's two, it's, you know, two characters in there that are that are, are gay, or you, you, know, you get on your favorite blog or something, and it's something else about this issue. Or maybe you're here today, and I shared what I'm speaking on, and you're like, oh, I'm so sick of this. And you're dismayed that we're even talking about this here today. Have you ever sat back and thought to yourself, what is the big deal? Why is this what everybody's talking about? Like, where does, are there not children dying in Africa? And all we want to talk about is what two men want to do in the privacy of their apartment. Why, why is this the thing that's so big and fascinating and has all of this energy behind it? I would like to answer that from Scripture. There is a reason that this is such a big deal and has so much enormous money and political power and energy behind it. And now we come to Romans chapter 1. And if you have a Bible, you can turn there. This is one I'm going to spend a little bit of time on. Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, you know, the book of Romans is uh, arguably the quintessential explanation of the gospel. And you maybe could ask yourself, hey, if you were going to write or if somebody was going to write the clearest description of the gospel of Jesus, what would be your starting point? And, you know, maybe you would say, well, I would start with love. Or I would start with justice or some other theme like that. Guess where Paul begins? And let me read it for you now. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealing, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul makes an incredible statement here. Here's what he says. The visible world that we live in is tied to the invisible world, or namely, the invisible creator of the world. That the nature of the world that, is, that we live in is a reflection that is organically, spiritually connected to what God is like. 
And he says, on the basis of that, that communication is so clear that there will never be anybody who stands in judgment before God and says to God, if only you would have told me something about yourself. Why? If I would have known anything that you were there and what you're like, I would have worshipped you, but you told me nothing. And God's going to say, did you ever see a sunrise? Did you ever drink coffee? Did you ever eat strawberry pie? Did you ever feel the love of your mother? And will on the basis of that revelation condemn men and women to eternal judgment? Nobody will be able to say that they didn't know. Now in saying that, I don't want you to think that there's enough in creation to be saved. There's enough in creation to condemn, but there's not enough to be saved because salvation comes only in the name of Jesus. And that's why we're the church called to share this message with people because there's no other name under heaven whereby men might be saved. You can stare at the plant all day long, but you're not going to come to the conclusion, Jesus died for my sins. And that's why we're, it's so critical that we share the gospel. But the, the natural revelation around us is a clear enough indication because it so closely reflects what God is like that men are without excuse. Or to say it this way, creation tells of its creator in the same way that uh, you can stare at Da Vinci paintings and learn something about Da Vinci and you can listen to Beatles music and you can know something about what the Beatles are all about and you can know a little bit about your mama by eating or cooking, right? Those things are telling us, they are creative expressions from the creator of the thing, but they tell us what the creator of the thing is like. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. But what does man do with this everyday pouring forth speech and Psalm 19 kind of knowledge? Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Man's response to the sunset is not, God, you're fantastic. Oh my goodness. Wow. Thank you for that. Man doesn't respond to the revelation of God with worship, but rather uh, man's fallen nature revolts against God. And the result of this now, Paul says, is it begins man on a path, a moral and spiritual journey where they begin trading or exchanging things. Like what? Verse 22, claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, rather than worshiping the created or the creator, they worship the created thing. Rather than worshiping God, they worship the things that he made and then try to derive meaning in life from the drug, sex, and rock and roll. Which, of course, man isn't made to derive purpose and meaning from drug, sex, and rock and roll or anything else that's in this created world. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest with thee. 
But man becomes futile in his thinking and begins to go down a path where he's trading the glorious thing for the non-glorious thing. He gives up God and he worships the material thing and experiences the devastation of deriving meaning from something other than God. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. Do you see the exchange? They trade purity for impurity. They trade the, the creator for the created thing. And there be, each of these is, a, is, a, is like a declension. It's a further step, an iteration, further and further from the flourishing, blessed life as God intended. They trade the truth for a lie and then try to live life based on the lie. You know, when your starting point is a lie, everything you do will be false because your reference point is not true. It's like, you know, if you're, if you're sailing or something, if, if you think the North Star is, it's the North Star, but it's actually the South Star, it doesn't matter how much steering that you do, you're never going to be going towards the North Star because your starting point is wrong. And that is the world that we live in. That is fallen human nature. That is your neighbors. That is you and me, naturally, by birth. We don't have God as the reference point. And so everything we do is skewed. And enter now into this human sexuality. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Gave them up means basically, he says, if this is what you want, then here you go. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That is just beautiful, powerful writing, isn't it? To talk about, you, you untether from God, you take God out of your sort of awareness and self-identity, now your sexuality, which was by God's design based upon his character, now is trying to be defined and explained based upon a lie. And the end result of that in human nature is rather than by design, the man's designed to be attracted to the woman. Now the man, untethered from God and his definition, starts finding men attractive. And the woman, who by God's nature and by God's design was to be attracted to the man, starts finding her sexual identity in her relationship with another woman. It is a sexual exchanging that he is describing here. So if heterosexuality, let me say it this way because I wrote it better than I can say it. If heterosexuality is a reflection of God's nature, and if marriage is a reflection of God's purpose for the sexes, and if our sexual expression is to be an act of worship, then the disconnecting of these things from the character of God will lead ultimately to sexual exchanging. And this passage is just describing what happens when a man or a woman or a culture or society or a civilization untethers 
from God. In that context, homosexual sexual union, or I'm sorry, heterosexual sexual union is traded for homosexual sexual union. Or any number of other things. Sexual freedom, basically. You want to be with a man? Hey, great. You want to be with a woman? Hey, great. You want to be with both and a bi kind of thing? Great. You want to do threesomes? Great. Whatever you want. It doesn't matter. And if there is a God that is enshrined in the American culture, it is sexual freedom. Who are we to tell you or anybody what they or they cannot do in the privacy of their own home? I mean, that's like ingrained on Mount Rushmore, isn't it? Why is homosexuality a sin in the eyes of God? Because heterosexuality pictures what God is like. Homosexuality does not. It says what God is not like. God is diversity in unity. He is not sameness in unity. And that reflection is a false one. Now, I haven't answered the question yet. Why is there such vitriol about this? I mean, again, children are dying in Africa. We've got nuclear proliferation going on around the world. Slavery, you know, all kinds of massive problems. And all anybody wants to talk about is this. Why is there such power behind this? And why are the polls changing in America? Which is what they cite to be why this is justified is because now a little bit more people than used to think that maybe it's okay. Here is why. Because while not everyone in America identifies as gay, in fact, it's a very small percentage, the majority of America doesn't want God's law in heterosexuality either. And to embrace the goose is to embrace the gander. To say that the homosexual ought not be doing that or same-sex marriage is not legitimate sex is to invoke a standard which then has to be applied to their own behavior. And heterosexual America doesn't want any limit on their freedom either. So the solution is what? Everybody does what they want. All free to do what you want. Oh my, I can't say nothing. And behind that movement is the anti-God enshrined sexual... It's, it's the bales of the Old Testament all over again. The bowing down to sexuality and sexual freedom, whether straight or gay. Now, I, I'd like to do a series of whatabouts, okay? What about blank? Let's begin with this, in light of what we've just seen here. What about same-sex attraction? What about same-sex attraction? And this deserves more time and attention than I'm going to give to it here. Uh, But I think that it's critical that we understand that there is moral distance between same-sex sex sex and same-sex attraction. One is a temptation. One is a sin. Now you might ask, well, how can you make that kind of distinction? Here's why I make that distinction. Was Jesus tempted sexually. I believe that he was. 
I mean, if Hebrews says he was tempted in every way such as we, yet without sin, and if this is like probably the number one temptation that mankind faces, you bet that he was tempted sexually. Yet, was he sinless and innocent? We know that he was. He was the pure, holy lamb of God. Never sinned once. So he was tempted to sin in this way, but he did not act upon that temptation. And as we come to look at people that struggle with same-sex attraction, we have to realize that that attraction itself is not sin. It is the acting upon it that is. And further, our understanding of, the, of mankind and the fall and sin and sin nature, it shouldn't surprise us as a church in trying to minister to people in the midst of their pain and their brokenness, that we're going to find all kinds of expressions and all kinds of brokenness. It's like, it's like a, a glass vase getting shattered. That, those shards come in all different kinds and shapes. And mankind is the same. We have in this room, you're all shards. Your problem isn't your problem isn't your problem isn't your problem. It all comes from the same place. But all of us struggle with that brokenness in different ways. So when we come across somebody who their shard of brokenness is that they are attracted to somebody of the same sex, that attraction itself is not a sin. And the church needs to be able to minister to people that struggle with this. And maybe just talking about it here kind of, you know gets it out in the open and helps us as a congregation to be okay with ministering to people that struggle in this category. Now, Sam Alberry is an author and a pastor of a church in England. His testimony is that same-sex attraction has been and continues to be a challenge for him such that he is not married, he's remaining single, he is celibate, he is pastoring a church, he's an evangelical Christian. And he's written about how can the church help people that struggle in this category. He lists five things. I'm just going to read these because I don't have time to get into them. Number one, make it easy to talk about it. If you can't talk about it, you can't be helped with it. Number two, honor singleness. That same-sex attracted individual has to choose, if they're not going to act upon that, to remain single and celibate. If you say marriage heterosexually is the only way that you're viewed to being a real Christian, well, then now that person's not going to feel very welcome in that church, are they? And so I hope Bethel Church, especially given my story, is a place that singleness is honored. Number three, remember that church is family. Number four, deal with biblical models of masculinity and femininity rather than cultural stereotypes. And number five, provide good pastoral support. I'm moving on. What about caring for and loving homosexual friends and family? I'll get this question periodically. We'll have somebody in our church that, you know, they have a child or maybe it's, you know, they have a brother and it's Christmas and they have a gay lover and they want to bring them to the party. What do we do? How do we handle this? And I don't have all the answers with this, but one suggestion that I would make is that you treat it in the same way you would treat any other sin that that family member might be struggling with. If your brother is struggling with porn, you're not likely to say you're not welcome to our Christmas party, right? Now, at the same time, you're not going to say, and by the way, we're okay with your porn. You are going to love the person 
while not endorsing the sin. And it seems to me applying that principle is really the key for how to continue to develop that relationship even while you prayerfully hope for their freedom from the bondage of it. I think too often this is a sin that people struggle with, and in the church we view it like the plague. Again, so that somebody, you could, you could stand up in church and say, you know what, I robbed seven banks, I did drugs for 25 years, sold them, did them, and five times I crashed my car intentionally for insurance money. But then I met Jesus. People would be like, oh, that's a fantastic testimony. Isn't that wonderful? It's so great to have you in the church. But if somebody gets up and says, my uncle touched me when I was seven, and this has been a struggle for me. Do we want people like that in our church? And you see how we put it in a kind of category that keeps the church from being the church to that individual when what they need is the same thing that everybody else needs, including us. They need, the, they need the gospel. They need freedom in Christ. They need forgiveness. They need restoration and redemption. And where do they get that except for the church? What about the church's response? What about the church's response? I believe that this area, homosexuality, same-sex attraction, same-sex marriage, this category is for our generation what slavery was 200 years ago and other issues that have been defining sort of moments, asking the question, do those people actually get the gospel? Do they understand their own sinfulness so that they can reach out to somebody who's involved in a sinful category that maybe they find personally repulsive? This is ours, okay? This is our moment. This is our issue. And I want us to get this right. Now, I want to tell you a story from my own um, observation, my own life experience. And this goes back 25 years ago. I was in college. Now, some of you are doing the math. I think it was more than 25. Let's say it was 20 years ago when I was in college. But uh, back when I was in college, late 80s, early 90s, college was the best 10 years of my life. Um, Just joking there. But um, when I was in college, my college, across the street from my college, was one of the most famous, most well-known evangelical churches in America. So when I was in college, I attended there. And to describe this church, I mean, this is a church, I, I, I have no ill to speak of this church. I'm just going you know, to describe it a little bit. This is one of the churches that, um, I mean, great heritage. You walk into the church, they've got big framed pictures of the pastors that have pastored that church. I mean, well-known, influential people, these pastors up on the wall at their church. Great idea here at Bethel Church, maybe the Commons, something like that. But um, You'll find my picture nowhere in this church, but uh, that's, I'm okay with that, mostly. Um, But you walk in there and you've got that, I mean, famous people that have pastored that church and uh, wonderful heritage in this church, very great tradition. And the church, in, in some ways, rightfully proud of that tradition and that standing that the church had. It was a kind of a mover shaker type church. I mean, very influential people kind of, you know, famous somewhat people attended there, lots of money, lots of uh, influence in the evangelical world. 
That's this church. So I don't know if I described that well enough for you, but you get a picture in your mind. Well, back in the 80s, late 80s, they called to their pastorate a guy by the name of Ed Dobson. And Ed came to the church. I was there when he came. And sometime after he came, he began to somewhat quietly minister to the gay community of that city. Now, if we go back to the late 80s, early 90s, some of you might remember, this is when AIDS was all the fear and all the talk. Magic Johnson came out being HIV positive. It was front news, front page, everybody was talking about it. And there was a little bit of a fear associated with the disease and who, how you can get it and stuff like that. So we're going back into that time era. And, and so Ed began to minister to the gay community. And here, this was his deal. He said, I'll go to the hospital. Anybody that's dying with AIDS, I will go. I'll talk with them. I'll pray with them. I'll be with them. And so some people began to take him up on it. And so he's there, and not only is he there, but the gay lover is there, and the family is there, and he's ministering to them. And without too much time, he developed a reputation within the gay community as being, you know, he's evangelical, but man, that guy's a straight-up guy. He really cares about you. Well, this got out in the church and went over like a lead balloon in this, in this church because, I mean, this is like the famous, very, you know, reputable church and their pastor is hanging out in the hospital wards ministering to people dying with AIDS largely as a result of their gay lifestyle. And I was there the Sunday that uh, Pastor Dobson pulled out a letter, and he said, I have a letter here that I would like to read to you. This letter was written to me from a member of our church, a concerned member of our church. And he read the letter, and in the letter, basically the individual said, "Uh, Pastor, if you keep this ministry up, we are going to have homosexuals attending our church. And I'll never forget him looking up from that letter and saying, that's right, we will. And they can join all the other liars, cheats, and adulterers we already have here. (laughs) It was the perfect thing to say. Because what is the problem with the woman who wrote the letter and the people that were thinking that way? They were not focused, they were focused on the sin out there. They were not aware of the sin in here. And the gospel reminds us every day that we ourselves are sinners. We embrace what Paul the apostle says in 1 Timothy 1. He says, I am the worst sinner of all. How could Paul say that? He's the apostle. He's the church planner. He saw Jesus. He wrote scripture. How could he say he's the worst sinner? Because in his own mind, he was more aware of his own sin than anybody else's. And he saw that the gospel was for him first. And when it comes to the homosexual issue or same-sex attraction or all these things... Here is why it is a litmus test for our church. It will test us whether we believe our sin is worse or, or, or not of, of other sins. Whether we're the Pharisee standing up and saying, you know what, I'm glad I'm not like that tax collector or that homosexual over there. The gospel doesn't say that to us. What does it say? 
that I am a sinner and I am in need of the grace of God. And when I am humbled over my own sin, now I see the shards of brokenness in the person next to me, no matter what shape they're in, and I can extend to them the grace that I myself have received. Now, I reached out this week to a man in our church, a member of our church, who, I know his story, has struggled with same-sex attraction. And I said, I'm preaching on this this weekend. If you could say anything to Bethel Church, what would you say? And so I want to read to you right now what a member of our church, member in good standing, would say to his church, to us. On the topic of same-sex attraction, I would love for Bethel Church to understand that sexual brokenness is the result of sin and that it leads to sinful behavior, but that being broken is not sin. I think this makes sense to us when we think about someone battling heterosexual lust, but it becomes scary to think that the same thing of someone who battles same-sex attraction. Unfortunately, this all-too-common fear is one of the greatest hurdles that people like me will face on the road to healing because fear prevents fellowship. Here, I thank God for Celebrate Recovery. Another shout-out for Celebrate Recovery. That community has been so great for my healing because it never forced me to dwell on how evil I am, but rather helped me to let Jesus show me the roots of my sin and the nature of my brokenness. What I found is that my same-sex attraction is essentially an identity crisis lived out in idolatry and that the solution is worship. My healing has come from Christ through fellowship, and I have hope that as Christ wipes away fear, others like me will find similar healing. Member of Bethel Church. Friends, the bottom line is the only hope we have is in Christ, right? I mean, that's it. That's the bottom line. And so can I just say to you, if you have in your story painful things like this, you're dealing with this even now, you're wondering, is this a fellowship where I can even talk about this? It is. And we welcome you to the conversation. How do we navigate this Bethel Church where we don't compromise on what sin is? Because we don't want to do that. Compromise sin, you compromise the gospel. I suggest to you finally that we just do what Jesus did, who he himself is described as being full of grace and truth. To be a church ministering to people in their brokenness, full of grace, full of truth. We'll honor the Lord and be a blessing to sinners of every kind. Amen.